Lauren. Mike. Lauren, have you updated your iPhone to iOS 14.5 yet? I have a very tech reporter answer to that, which is that I do have an iPhone here that is running 14.5, but then I also have an older iPhone that is not, and I have an Android phone that, of course, is not. And so... um, Yes and no. I'd hate to break it to you, but you're not exactly the model of anti-tracking software then. (sighs) Yeah, don't I know it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor here at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired, whose information is just apparently all over the internet. (laughs) We're also joined by Wired senior writer Lily Newman from New York. Hello. We are also joined this week again by Wired senior politics writer Galad Edelman from Washington, D.C. Hi, Galad. Thanks for having me, guys. This is the first time that you've been back on since you threatened to replace me as host. So this is a privilege for you. Well, you got the last laugh by icing me out of the 500th anniversary extravaganza. (laughs) Lauren, did you guys get any fan mail about that? (laughs) I did. I got a DM. Someone slid into my Instagram DMs. Note, listeners, do not do this. And said... WTF, you guys did not invite Glad, misspelled your name, on for the 500th episode. So you have at least one fan who is clamoring for you to participate in our anniversary episode. And I'm sorry that we left you out. I forgive you. Thank you. Well, it's fitting that you bring up your Instagram DMs, Lauren, because this week we are talking about user privacy. Not about Instagram, though. So this week, Apple released a software update for iPhones and iPads. One key feature of the new iOS 14.5 gives users more control over how ads track them while they're using mobile apps. With this software, all apps are required to notify a user if the app will be tracking their activity. Apps are also required to let the user opt out of being tracked. The move has been supported by privacy advocates, but it's also upset companies that rely on user data to sell ads. Apple's move has particularly cheesed off Facebook. After all, Facebook's primary business model involves harvesting user data to improve ad targeting. If Facebook knows you look at a lot of running shoes and Danish furniture while you're plunking around on your phone, well, they might also know a few folks who could pay top dollar to show you ads for running shoes and Danish furniture. If every iPhone user now gets the option to cut off that flow of data, it ends up being something of an existential threat to Facebook. Now, Lily... You wrote about Apple's new app tracking transparency feature. iOS 14.5 just rolled out this week. Tell us what specific changes people might notice after they upgrade. That was a great explanation, by the way. This stuff is very complicated. (laughs) What you're going to notice is apps prompting you with this question about, you know, whether or not you consent to be tracked. And for the first time, it's giving you this granular opportunity to say yes or no. Uh, And as we heard, this isn't location tracking. This is essentially, this is assigning an identifier to you so companies can work together to track your web activity and app activity across different services. So let's say a company owns a bunch of different apps. You might assume that they at least have the ability to share data between the apps and figure out what users are doing across their apps. Maybe they do it, maybe they don't, but it makes sense that they would be able to. But there's this whole other ecosystem out there that's kind of invisible to users where companies that don't seem to have anything to do with each other create the ability to track you and what you're doing and what you're looking at and 
combine all of that data to get a composite picture of what you have going on in your browsing. And the fact that that's so unintuitive, I think, is a big part of what Apple's trying to address here by surfacing it every time an app is asking for this. So how has this changed in iOS 14.5, which is mobile specific, right? It's specific to iPhone, different from the changes that Apple made to desktop Safari back in 2018? iOS previously provided a mechanism to cut off this type of tracking altogether. The types of IDs that we're talking about here are called IDFAs. And those IDs, you, you had the ability in previous versions of iOS to say, I want to turn off all IDFA tracking. So, you know, Apple has already made some forays into this you know, area on iOS. But the change now is, first of all, they're going to be prompting you. It's not something that's deep in the settings. And second of all, you're going to have more granular control app to app because sometimes maybe you'll want to select, you know, that the tracking is allowed. Maybe you'll find that turning it off breaks features that you want to use or the ads you're getting are really random and you don't want that. So, you know, having the control app to app and surfacing it in a pop-up or sort of an overlay rather than just, you know, on or off of the fire hose deep in the settings, that's the big change in 14.5. There's there's another difference here, which is that, so Safari has something, a feature called intelligent tracking prevention, which is uh, Apple's attempt to block cross-site trackers. But the difference is that when you're on Safari, you are browsing the entire internet and, and Apple doesn't control what sites you can go to. And it's tracking prevention is not perfect. It's an attempt to, to prevent cross-site tracking, but it doesn't always work. The, this, this change to the App Store is different because Apple, somewhat controversially, as we've seen, exercises total control over what's allowed in the App Store. And it's not just that they're restricting access to the, the IDFA, the, the advertising identifier. Uh, under the, the terms of the App Store, apps are not allowed to come up with other ways of getting around this, coming up with other ways to track user activity, whether it's email logins or some, or some other technological solutions. So in theory, if a company comes up with some workaround, Apple could kick them out of the App Store. And so one thing that, and so, so that's a big difference from tracking prevention in Safari, where if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, they can't kick uh, a, a website off the internet. So a, a thing that will be interesting to see is what does the enforcement actually look like? How, you know, there's millions of apps out there. Not all of them are going to to jump into compliance. And so what will it look like when, uh, you know, when the rubber meets the road? And that's going to play out over the over the next months and years. So, yeah, it will be interesting to watch. Um, there's one app in particular I, I want to focus on, Lily, because uh, you mentioned in your story that Facebook has been very uh, vocal and aggressive in its objections to this move by Apple. What has the company said about this new policy? Yes, the company has been extremely aggressive on this They've really focused on the potential threat to small businesses that, you know, this is the new world order, essentially. And this is how mom and pop shops reach their audiences and, you know, target the right segment of users. And, you know, that this is just going to screw all of that over, basically. Uh, and 
they took out full page ads in national newspapers. They have been making comments in uh, advertising industry meetings, obviously sort of rallying support. They've also been noting the potential concerns for their business in earnings calls. So sort of a full court press on this issue, but Apple's response has basically been, you know, you can still do all of this tracking within your own apps. And for Facebook, that's a lot of apps and a lot of users. So one thing this really reveals is the fact that even though Facebook does have so many, you know, billions of users across multiple incredibly popular platforms like, you know, the Facebook main site, Instagram, Messenger, on and on, they actually get a lot of their information on users. And uh, some studies have shown the vast, vast majority of their information elsewhere, you know, from other platforms and from that cross-platform tracking of being able to create the composite image of what users have going on. Yeah, almost any app you use probably has Facebook software development kit uh, embedded in it. And that is a just a straight information pipeline back to the Facebook mothership. And, and one reason this is important is because um, you know, as, as nice as it is for Facebook to see what you clicked on when you're on Facebook or when you're on Instagram, they're selling ads. And what do advertisers care about the most? What do you buy? You know, what do you pay money for? And so that kind of information is super valuable. And so if there's any apps where you are doing, you know, where you're a customer, the being able to track your transactions is super valuable to any platform that's selling advertising. So do any of these new anti-tracking features apply to Apple's own apps in 14.5? Like if you switch regularly between the mail app and calendar or I don't know, any other app that you is basically on your phone and you can't get rid of? Apple offers targeted advertising to advertisers in the app store, but to do that, that that's device level tracking, right? Because because you're operating, because when you're using your iPhone, you're on Apple's property the whole time, they don't need to do cross context, cross app tracking because you're just, you're on your phone. And so you can keep all that information about what you're doing on the device and still create a, uh, you know, profile for advertisers in the app store to target you, essentially advertising apps for you to buy. It's a good question because these, you know, these things have come up before with Apple's rules for itself versus its rules for others. But certainly the broad takeaway and the, the reason I, I think it you know is true that they don't rely on this type of tracking between their own apps is that the whole point of this is this is hitting other companies' revenue models where it hurts in a way that it's not hitting Apple's, right? That's the whole reason they're able to take this step and they sort of pride themselves on that and, you know, present it as almost a humanitarian cause. But it also, you know, just relates to the realities of their business model. The fact that they have a successful hardware business, which many companies don't or haven't really attempted. Uh, and, you know, just a totally different setup than a lot of other companies. So they are able to make this move without it being a hit for them. And as far as Android goes, like I'm an Android user. Do I have anything like this on my phone where I can stop apps from watching my activity? There is a feature on Android similar to what iOS offered before to reset those advertising IDs. And you can also zero them out 
permanently, I believe. Uh, so, you know, it can sort of be a one-time reset if you're just sick of the same, you know, ads for hiking boots following you around the web, or it can sort of permanently undermine the tracking by not being a real identifier. Uh, but I don't believe currently Android has anything like this in terms of throwing up a notification like, you know, the, this is what the app wants to do. Are you okay with that? And going app by app. Uh, I also think that because iOS is taking this step, a lot of uh, organizations are going to need to rely more heavily on user tracking uh, across platforms in Android and uh, in browsers on the open web. Uh, and as Galad was saying, even, you know, whatever uh, uh, roadblocks come up to try to make it harder, they're going to be trying to work around those and, you know, just figure out other technological ways to do it uh, and just keep going and going on all those users who are not on iOS. But at the same time, this is going to make any Intel on what iOS users are doing and, you know, that, again, that composite picture trying to get that uh, larger view, it's going to make, you know, any information on iOS users a lot more valuable and sought after. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was going to say that information on iOS users is always more valuable and sought after because that, you know, that's, we're talking about two halves of the American mobile market. Of course, internationally, Android is much more dominant. But here, about half of people use iPhones, and those people tend to have a lot more money to spend, right? I iPhones are more expensive. And so to the question of, like, how, how does this kind of shift the the water around the advertising spending balloon? I, it, it's really an interesting and a, and a hard question to answer because advertisers aren't just going to pack up and stop trying to reach Apple users, right? Because that remains a, a valuable consumer segment so there it's it, it is possible that this that this shifts money directly to android advertising for sure but it's also possible that um, advertisers lean into other forms of advertising that are still taking place on apple's platforms but that don't require personal uh, uh, data gathered by by tracking people individually all right well that's a good place to take a break uh, and when we come back let's talk about what happens when privacy and antitrust collide Welcome back. One dynamic that has emerged in the debate around privacy is that antitrust allegations are being lobbed at companies, whether they're seeming to strengthen privacy or disregard it. As our colleague Galad Edelman put it, this is the place where privacy and antitrust collide. For example, last year, the Federal Trade Commission filed antitrust lawsuits against Facebook, saying the company's dominance has led it to becoming less stringent about protecting the private data of its users. But now Google is at the center of another antitrust case, this one relating in part to its plan to kill off third-party cookies in Chrome, which would help protect user privacy. And Apple is now facing an antitrust complaint from a German media and advertising company because of its new anti-tracking rules that we just talked about. In other words, some companies are being sued for their privacy lapses. Others are being sued for strengthening privacy features. It's very complicated. Gilad, what is going on here? Privacy can play a few different roles in antitrust cases. So if we start at a really high level, antitrust law is about fair competition, 
it's you know it's it's not just about the size of companies it's about our, do we have competitive markets and so in general and when an antitrust lawsuit is making some kind of claim about how companies are harming competition and the negative consequences of that so in the facebook case the role that privacy plays is as evidence that facebook's social media monopoly has been a bad thing and this is it was is, is kind of an, a, a theoretical innovation in antitrust law because if you think about a company like Facebook, it's always hard to show how they're directly harming users because Facebook is free. So the the kind of the classic anti-monopoly case would say you cornered the market and then you raised prices, but Facebook to its users doesn't have any prices to raise. But what it can do is degrade the quality. Because that's another thing that, that having a monopoly allows you to do. If you don't have competition, you don't have to worry as much about offering something that people like. And so the, the big lawsuits filed by the FTC and the Coalition of States last year, this was a central part of their allegations against Facebook. If you go back to the beginning of the company, at the time that Facebook launched, the biggest player in social networking was MySpace. And MySpace had these notorious privacy problems where it was kind of a free-for-all and anybody could access your your page and there were kids on it and there were predators on it. And when Facebook rolled around, it was really different because it was limited at first to college networks and then it expanded gradually beyond that. But you, you know, you had to log in. It was based on your true identity. It was at first limited to communities that felt a little smaller, more secure, where people actually knew each other. And, the, and they very self-consciously marketed themselves as being awesome for privacy. And they said, we will never track users and we will never, you know, do all this shit that they ended up obviously doing and making uh, hundreds of billions of dollars doing. And so the lawsuits against Facebook say this fact is deeply related to their growing dominance over social media where once they pushed other companies out of the market or and or bought other companies like Instagram they didn't have to worry as much about users privacy expectations and in, there's this really fascinating email exchange that the investigation uh, uncovered that's mentioned in the lawsuits this is when google was launching google plus and it wasn't yet obvious that it would be a colossal failure and <laughs> facebook, facebook was contemplating some change that would make your your photos i think less private and there's this email where they're basically like let's hold off on this until we crush google plus and people don't have a direct competitor to compare us to so this is this is a long way of saying that in the face in a case like facebook the role that privacy plays is it's a it's a way that a company could make the consumer experience worse once it doesn't have to worry about competition. So how are these other antitrust cases different? So Google and Apple are both in the position of recently making slash announcing changes that should strengthen privacy. So we've already talked about what Apple is doing. In the case of Google, they're phasing out third-party cookies in their Chrome browser, which is by far the most popular internet browser. Yeah, it's like over 60% browser share, right? Yeah. So, you know, you might look at Google phasing out third-party cookies and say, oh, that's cool. You know, we all kind of have a sense that third-party cookies are, are kind of bad. They're tracking us. But a lot, a lot, a lot of people are not happy with what Google is doing. And the reason is, and this is where it gets into the antitrust thing, is who makes the most money in the universe 
by tracking users extensively across the web and across the physical landscape and selling advertisements based on the data? Google. And so there's a case to be made that by restricting access to third-party tracking, but retaining its ability to track what you're doing when you're in Google Chrome, and let's, let's keep in mind, right, Google Chrome is very pushy about, or nudgy, you could say, or nudgy, Lily and I would say, about... <laughs> getting you to log in, right? So when you log into Gmail, you then you go to YouTube and, and somehow you're already logged into YouTube because you're logged into the browser. So long story short, Chrome doesn't need third-party cookies to track you. Android, if you're using an Android phone, they don't need third-party cookies to track you. And so the here the antitrust argument is you are behaving anti-competitively. You are doing something unfair because you have so much control over the browser, the phone, you have so much control over where users are that you can turn off the spigot of of tracking to third parties, make your own data even more valuable and hurt everybody else. And so there are multiple antitrust investigations into this move by Google to get rid of third party cookies. And I mean, so so here we have kind of two opposite scenarios, right, where you have oh, Facebook, you're bad for reducing privacy. Oh, Google, you're bad for increasing privacy. And both might be true. So what is a solution that would effectively strengthen privacy for consumers, um, particularly here in the US, where we have lagged behind some privacy protections compared to, say, Europe, um, where also we're not inadvertently or directly putting more power in the hands of tech companies that already have so much power over our everyday tech existences. Right. So there's a couple There's a couple of big asterisks on the Google discussion. The biggest one is... We don't really know if whatever they replace third-party cookies with will really protect privacy in any meaningful way. I've written about how the very concept of privacy is is very up for debate. And, and what a lot of people told me is, well, this only protects privacy if you define privacy as not having third parties tracking you. If, if you think that Google tracking your every move is a privacy problem, then you, you then it's not really so great what they're doing. So so that, that might be a, a partial answer is right. you have to really scrutinize what's really happening here. Right. Or the other side of that being, well, do you consider strengthened privacy, quote unquote, to be a series of notifications that tell you you're being tracked and give you <laughs> and giving you the chance to opt out? Like a lot of consumers just aren't going to do that. Right, right, right. In the in the Apple scenario, there's a couple of important differences. The first is that by by changing the defaults, because that's what Apple is doing, right? Now the default is you're not being tracked unless you opt in. That That is a meaningful shift. And the second thing is that Apple, unlike Facebook and Google, does not primarily make its money by tracking users and selling advertising based on the data they gather. Now, complicating that is that Apple does sell some advertising. They sell ads in the App Store, and people have complained that even even Apple is benefiting itself by restricting tracking on iOS while retaining its own right to, you know, keep an eye on what you're doing on your phone. So it's all just horrifically complicated. But if we can just simplify it a little bit, let's let's just imagine Apple is basically a, a company that doesn't that's not in the surveillance advertising business. You don't worry so much about them moving the privacy dial because they don't have this big ulterior motive. So one question you want to ask is well, let's step back. How does this company make its money? If it makes its money by essentially the mass invasion of billions of users' privacy, maybe they shouldn't be allowed to be in the position of deciding the privacy rules of the internet. So does the fact that these tiny software changes can have such massive impact 
only really underscore how powerful some of these companies have become, particularly if they're building a walled ecosystem. Earlier this week, the New York Times reported a story about Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg's increasingly icy relationship. You might even call them frenemies. And how this series of meetings between the two executives over the years have um, just become a little bit more fraught. And one of the anecdotes in the story that stood out to me was how um, the result of one of their meetings was that photos from iPhone could be shared a little bit more easily to Facebook, right? They had arrived at some sort of partnership and it was just going to make that, there was that small little change that was going to make things a little bit easier between iPhone and Facebook. And I remember reading it and thinking, gosh, that seems like such a small thing, right? Like it's not that hard to share your iPhone photos to Facebook, but I guess this this decision was arrived at between the two executives that it was going to make it easier. But then you think about like, you know, Apple has more than a billion installs of its devices around the world. Facebook has more than 2 billion users around the world. And you think about the scale of that, potentially, like it's actually quite massive. So it seems like a small thing, but it's huge. And, and I guess I'm wondering, like, doesn't that only serve to underscore how powerful these companies have actually become? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I, to, to, for what it's worth, I don't think Apple's latest change is small at all. I think it's an absolutely colossal deal because people who care about privacy have been saying for years, you need to ha- you need to change the defaults so that people are not being tracked by default, that they have to opt in. And so Apple, the government has not achieved that in the United States, but Apple for the you know half or so of the mobile market that uses its products is now implementing that for apps. So that, so that that's a big deal. But you know this is sort of this is such a banal point. But where these conversations always end up is two places. One, these companies are too powerful, and we need more competition in these markets. And two, um, both on antitrust and on privacy stuff, the government needs to govern. And you know these companies are acting in the vacuum left by government that's just not addressing these problems on its own. And so we're always stuck choosing between imperfect solutions. Yeah, right. Like the the issues the issues that are being brought up are pretty much all made possible by like the philosophical idea of the open web being this wonderful beautiful thing, which it is, right? The famous saying, there are no speed limits or guardrails on the information superhighway. This is this is the result, right? So if legislators start actually putting their hands on the dials, won't that make the web sort of a more difficult place to do business and a more difficult place to be as a user? I mean, it'll it'll make it more difficult to do certain kinds of businesses, right? It'll make it, it, it in my ideal world, it becomes very, very difficult to make money by uh, surveilling people when they don't know that you're doing it and, and then using that to micro-target them with ads. Um, you know, that business makes it harder to be a citizen on the internet. Like sites load really slowly because they're doing this automated advertising auction and then loading ads. I mean, like it's it sucks, basically. So I think there's there's ways for the government to stick its grubby meat hooks in and make things worse, but the status quo sucks. Yeah, <laughs> fully. I also think, uh, you know, what Galad said about just not having the same players who make the products make the decisions about how we conceptualize privacy. I think that is a crucial point. I think governments definitely have a role to play, but as you're saying, Mike, the internet is or aspires to be a global service. So, you know, no one government can resolve everything, but just having other entities do the nudging and nudging would be really helpful because currently, for example, Google as a company does a lot of uh, important 
advocacy on privacy and security issues, but it's always controversial because the issue is just inherently that they have a conflict of interest every time, even though a lot of what they've done and rallied around and, you know, done coalition building on is good. It's just impossible to disentangle from their own interest. And so to Lauren's point, all those small decisions are really magnified because they're being championed by people who have an interest in promoting their products as well. Well, this is an invigorating and important conversation, but we do have to stop here and uh, take a break. And when we come back, we will do our recommendations. Okay, welcome back everyone. This is our final segment of the show where we ask our hosts and our guests to recommend things that they've been enjoying that our audience might also enjoy. Lily, you go first. What is your recommendation? Okay, I wanted to have a privacy tie-in recommendation or something like that, but just with everything going on in the world, my recommendation that I think uh, listeners may enjoy uh, is hugs. Uh, just hugging uh, a loved one or someone you kind of know or someone <laughs> you haven't seen in a long time, you know, really runs the gamut of uh, closeness and relationships. But just hugs are really great. I am currently rediscovering them and highly recommend to all. Lily, do you recommend that people be vaccinated if they hug? Uh, yes, I recommend whatever the CDC is currently recommending. Uh, tough to even keep up, but uh, I am fully vaxxed and two weeks out and the whole shebang and uh, I, you should be too. So pro hugs and, you know, hugs, it's a private thing. Like don't, don't let advertisers into your hugs, you know, it's just... <laughs> How can we monetize them? Oh, definitely. Opt into hugs, opt out of the tracking of the hugs. Galad, what's your recommendation? <laughs> we did lemons already, right? We did, yes. yes. Okay. For those of I'm you who gonna... can't see the Zoom, Galad has a very sneaky smile on right now. I'm, I I'm... <laughs> my I'm gonna go with I recommend I really think this is the summer where we all unbutton one more button of our shirts than we're used to. Oh, no, I'm turning off my Zoom. What? <laughs> I'm just saying a nice deep V, especially when you're out and about, right? We're all going to be getting out there. We're all going to be hugging. And it feels kind of nice. Like the, you know, just like you're, you know, you know what I'm saying, Kalori? Come on, bro. As, as yes. And, and, you know, I, I wear glasses. You probably wear sunglasses. It's a good place to keep your sunglasses, right? Uh, actually, that's kind of a sensitive subject. I find that when I unbutton, when I, so usually, right, you, you button the, I guess, technically the third button of the shirt is the typical male, at least button up shirt situation. But, but when I, when I go one lower, actually, it feels like a little bit, the, the, the sunglasses are too low, but that's okay. That's why my other recommendation is breast pockets. I'm such a fan of breast pockets. <laughs> Can I ask a question about the buttoning? Uh, is this uh, an opt-in situation where I, I can elect to opt out as the default? Well, you're wearing a pullover shirt, so I don't think you even can opt in right now, Lily. You need to get a software upgrade. I'm all about the button downs. Yeah, see, Lauren's getting into it. She's unzipping that zip. 
Yeah, but just to be clear, I do have a T-shirt on underneath that. Well, yeah, I'm not talking about doing anything inappropriate here, yeah. guys. Certainly not. There's these are very personal calibrations. I'm just saying, don't don't think that you know the perfect number. Let's put it that way. Okay. What do you go what on your own individual if... journey about that's context dependent mm-hmm. and very personal about what the right buttoning level is for you this mm-hmm. summer? And what's your recommendation around chest hair? Let me answer that question. Oh, no, no, no. No, No, opt out, opt out. No, no, it's just like. uh, Let me answer that question with words. What did you think I was going to (laughs) say? Your recommendation is whatever makes you comfortable, man. Oh, I look forward to your future recommendation of side boob. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm not it's, recommending that, but I'm not not recommending it. It's like it's it's hard to be the host this week because I don't know what to say and also I don't know when to jump in. So I'm just gonna end this now and kick okay. it to Lauren. Tell us your recommendation. Okay. Well I feel like maybe the characters on this show will greatly appreciate Galad's recommendation. And actually Lily's. I just started watching Call My Agent on Netflix. So I'm a good. little behind the curve. It's a twenty fifteen French TV series that came to Netflix in twenty nineteen. And then throughout twenty twenty, I would hear from friends, you know, as we were Many of us were sitting home, not vaccinated and not hugging. They, they were watching it and enjoying it. But I, I'm just I finally got into it. It's a delightful show about a talent agency in Paris that represents actors. But the agents themselves create a lot more of the drama than than the actors do. Um, it, yeah, it's just delightful. I'm already on season two and um, it does have subtitles. I like that because it means that I can't be on my phone mm-hmm. or an iPad or checking work while I'm watching the program. I have to actually watch and pay attention. So, um, yeah, check out Call My Agent if you're looking for something new to watch or old but new to you. Mike, what's your recommendation this week? Well, since we have a couple of uh, gourmands uh, as our guests this week uh, who've brought many a wonderful food-related recommendation, I am also bringing a food-related recommendation this week. It will up your game no matter what type of cuisine you cook. It is crushed Calabrian chili peppers. These are chili peppers. They're very hot. They're grown in the south of Italy in Reggio Calabria, which is like the toe of the boot. If you look at the map of Italy, it's easy to find. Uh, Anyway, very hot. They're like Mediterranean hot peppers, and you can get them in a jar crushed with olive oil and salt mixed in. Uh, Trader Joe's sells them. There is a brand called Tutto Calabria that sells a whole bunch of different products from Calabria. All of them, if the name is to be believed. Uh, No matter which brand you get, these are very hot. They bring a lot more heat than you might think, and they're perfect on just about everything you can imagine putting hot sauce on. If you don't want, like, the Mexican flavors or you don't want the Asian flavors and you want, like, a good, like, you know, Mediterranean flavor... This is the perfect hot sauce. So you can put it on pizza. You can put it on pasta. You can put it on sandwiches. You can put it on your breakfast sandwiches. You can put it on uh, eggs. You can put it in soups. You can put it in lentils. It's just delicious. A big scoop will do you. I cannot recommend this highly enough. If you need some heat, they will make you sweat. They may make you sweat enough that you will have to unbutton that extra button on your shirt. Oh, no. Oh, no. I do want to acknowledge you for differentiating between sandwiches and breakfast sandwiches. Very important. (laughs) They are very important. I think you hit all my favorite food groups there. We got soup. We got lentils. We got breakfast sammies. Love it. 
So Galad, what um, what strange thing are you going to mix these with? You know, as much as I talk a big game, my diet, maybe coming out of the pandemic is a fine start to change, but it has gotten quite repetitive. So I'll just put it in all my normal boring things. Yeah, that's that's the way to do it. Because it's the same thing with every, like everybody was like way into baking bread and then everybody was way into like, you know, making their own pickles. And then people were just like cooking elaborate things. And now people are just like shoving whatever is in front of them into their face. So this is a good way to spice that up. Yeah, keep shoving but with a pepper on top. <laughs> I want to put it on a meatball so that I can then say the thing after I eat the meatball. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show. Thank you to Lily and Galad for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime, guys. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Goodbye. We will be back next week. <laughs>